You remember that time that uh, Stalin smoked a bunch of weed and got so high that he got the munchies <laughs> and ate all of the grain? In- <laughs> that greedy bitch. Oh, man. Yeah, have you seen the medals, like the uh, the marijuana growing medals from the USSR? Oh, yeah. Is yeah, that real? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was a um, That's so an sick. Um, from a, a book. It was um, uh, the title was Reefer Madness. It wasn't like related it was like the opposite form of what the movie was, the propaganda. It yeah. went into like the okay. deep history and it was talking about marijuana in the USSR and how Stalin had an affinity for really strong weed. And Interesting. one of his advisors was having like writer's block or something. And Stalin yeah. gave him some weed and he was like, it changed me. Like I was not the same person afterwards. <laughs> that, dude, smoking smoke weed with Stalin will dude, change I did not you. I guarantee you Stalin more. I thought that was all like just some mean bullshit. I didn't think that was real. No. Facts. Oh, same. man. You think- uh, no one gave this man a dab. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they had dabs yet I mean the USSR was ahead of the curve I mean they made it to space in like what one generation so they may have figured out dabs can you oh. imagine what a Soviet dab rig looked like <laughs> it was fucking clunker but it would it would work amazingly well for yeah, really exactly. long time working today. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Kalishnikov worked on in his free time <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure exactly which one of those sources at the bottom is the one I was talking about, but I'm pretty to narrow it down. It's one of the CIA.gov ones. <laughs> one <laughs> like three of them I listed under there, but just, it's one of those. Just that fucking, that fucking sentence. You're like what the hell? Okay, it's one of the CIA dumps that we'll be getting into tonight. <laughs> It's one of those links where they're openly admitting to what yeah, they do. Cool. One of the yeah, various exactly. links good, we talk good. about daily. Good. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. It actually is one of my favorite things to send people when they say communism and starvation, like gummies, no food, like the stupid shit they do. I'm like, oh, here's the CIA link where they said, you know, the USSR had better calorie intake than the US at the time. <laughs> what is she, four? Yeah, she uh, just turned four in September. Mm-hmm. They don't dox me, internet. (laughs) (laughs) Get doxed right before Christmas. Santa's not going to know where you are. You have to move. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. Speaking of doxing, I saw a crazy one on Twitter with uh, the PS5s. Yeah. This, This dude, he was a scalper, bought like 42 fucking PS5s. Oh, my God. Posted oh, it on shit. um, posted it on Twitter and was like, "Fuck your feelings." Like digital oh, version nine hundred, disc version eleven hundred. Later that day, robbed at gunpoint. <laughs> yep, he got <laughs> docs. Right. He got docs real quick, and then robbed at gunpoint. Well, fuck around and find out, man. Like exactly, there, there are some points of libertarianism I believe in, and that's one of them. <laughs> yeah. Now that's the market regulating itself. <laughs> it was like I told Mike, I was like, it's not, sh- it's not stealing, shoplifting, it's urban foraging. You know? Right. Yeah, exactly. I like that. I like that a lot. Urban foraging. <laughs> and, even, and even this idea like Mike's talking about, like the little extra episode, maybe a shorter, you know, bonus, fairly unedited um current events type episode i mean that that's definitely a way to help i mean the more content we have out there the 
uh, more w- we can engage with our listeners. But as far as me right now, two episodes a week is very challenging for me to make it to just because, yeah. uh, especially coming up on the holidays. I mean, I'm about to be like in Florida for a week. My my girlfriend, we're doing a trip with her family. And I'm already going to have to figure out my little hotel set up during that period. But there, there'd be no way yeah. I could do like two during that. And then I got to get back up here because yeah, my no parents are separated. So then that's two more Christmases and... I'm like going to be three Jesus. weeks away from my house. And I don't yeah, like to be three weeks away from my house because I have a bidet and I like my asshole licked by <laughs> a aquatic robot. <laughs> That's is, it the, is it the tushy? The no, no, I've got a, or, I've uh, got a nice one, yeah, man. The, oh yeah, I've, oh, I've, you got the full flex. Yeah, I, I got it. It's nice, heated seat, <laughs> heated vent. You know, mm. different omnidirectional. Uh, the water has a heated reservoir in it, so the water is always hot when you use it. Um, several different pressure modes, and I assure you, it can get up to colonoscopy if you wanted to. (laughs) 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 I don't know. I was actually listening to that Rev Left um, episode about postmodern conservatism, and Cosper's going to go off on a whole thing about that tonight, but that really got down to the core of why you cannot even bother arguing with conservatives, because it doesn't matter. They are not the party of facts and logic. They don't care about facts. They don't care about having any kind of consistent worldview or ideology it's literally just like it's like arguing with your abusive partner where like as soon as you try to like present actual points like they just change the subject or bring up something from the past that has nothing to do with the discussion at hand and you're just tearing your hair out because that's what you're dealing with like yeah no i i remember uh what was it innuendo studios had a video that was like all about like how the alt-right is like an abusive relationship Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good point yeah i love that dude's videos it's kind of conservatism in general. I wonder if most people are pulled towards conservatism because they're so inherently that way in their own life, or if maybe it actually goes in the reverse and you get caught up in that world and you do get so indoctrinated in, in such a abusive relationship ideologically that it then turns you into that type of person. I think it's definitely I, both because it's like, yeah. it definitely takes like, quite a bit of just non-empathy just like whatever the oh, fucking yeah. opposite of empathy is that's apathy apathy yeah sorry um yeah it just takes that because like they don't have the same belief systems that we do like everybody no. created equal equal opportunity no they believe in like hierarchical every there's always a bigger fish one person's be- always going to be better than somebody else like you just can't relate you can't how can we connect to that I think yeah. a lot of it too is is connected to a lack of class consciousness. Like, you know, yeah. well, if if you don't understand why the middle class is going to shit, the easiest <laughs> person to blame is the Mexican. Right. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Instead of of taking account of any kind of notable intersectionality uh between like you and the Mexican, you're you're going to blame them because you you know, who has time to learn macroeconomics and history uh, <laughs> when you're that lazy and drunk? Especially when macroeconomics and history are taught by fucking inherently right-wing institutions that are private institutions when you go to college. Yeah. I also retract the drunk part because I'm already there and I know that stuff. So, oh, shit, I got to get drink. Oh, yeah. Very important. Secondly, Cosper, goddamn, you're looking good, my dude. Like, what's going on with these headphones? 
That's right, kawaii right, as fuck, started. my dude. I'm loving I'm, it. I'm leaning, in, I'm leaning in to read Cosper's shirt. Sorry, princess. I only date crack whores. Okay. I love it. <laughs> oh, Bella Delphine, motherfucker. Salt some bath water. I had, I had to. I saw these. I know it's like, whatever, fuck you. But I, I love the aesthetic of these. And they're just awesome. And they have good qualities. Also, I, like I appreciate the, the, the compliments for the, the cat ears and the shirt. But I must give uh, a shout out to my friend Tori who gave me the shirt. It's pretty sick. <laughs> that is an Down amazing it. shirt. I can't read what it says. <laughs> Thank you, Tori. You've, you've blessed us all. Yeah, it says, uh, sorry, princess, I only date crack whores. Oh, well, maybe it goes <laughs> with my shirt. Go ahead, call the cops. <laughs> oh god <laughs> it, it way too accurately does <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ it worked out perfect uh, that's oh, the other it. thing we talked about Cosper to catch you up is we had I had said like I just am jonesing to bullshit about current events because so far I'm just doing it to myself in the shower so we might as well like have like another episode. Wait, what? You know, what do you what, break break that down for me? You're doing what to yourself in the shower? All the you things. know the normal things, all the normal <laughs> things you do in the shower. Are we doing phrases? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you guys do this, but I definitely have like arguments with myself in my head, usually in the shower, because that's the only time I'm not like actively consuming a podcast or some other form of media. But like, I'm just like arguing with the imaginary conservative in my head who's making these okay, dumbass okay. arguments. I'm like, but that's so stupid because you're a fucking more like, you yeah, know, you just absolutely. say that kind of shit. I, I thought you meant with yourself, like you're picturing yourself on the other side of the table and you're like, listen, Mike, it's time for me and you to have a heart to heart. And I'm like, that, that's a little different. Yeah. You're only room in this tower for one of us. <laughs> and I'm the one beating off right now. God damn it. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> no, I saved that for the OnlyFans. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, no, the show uh, is the imaginary argument uh, machine. Like that's all it's used for. Absolutely, dude. Like you also like get clean, but that's not the main reason. Some people, people go they, in just, there. they just like relax in the shower and like take some time to like chill out and let their shoulders down. No, I like, get more no, fist off. No, Nazi. I'm so worked up. Listen. <laughs> I do the same exact thing, Mike. I get so worked up after the shower. That's hilarious. See, I don't actually don't get that all that worked up because I always win the argument. So that definitely puts me at ease. You know? you I get need, worked up. You need you need better imaginary antagonist. I think you're letting yourself off the hook too easily. I never imagined <laughs> with myself. Sadly. The the worst is when I'm arguing with myself and then I can't come up with words. And I'm like, oh, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> oh, no. On Cosper, I mean, the whole principle of dialectics is that it is an ongoing, never winning battle, right? Precisely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, it, not that it's never, but like it, there's contradiction in everything. So it's like one of my, I like to argue with myself a lot because it at least challenges my ability to contradict myself, if that makes a sense. You know? Yeah. It totally does. I mean, to me, that's that's the thesis of why I tend to lean more left. And again, you y'all already know I'm not a communist, but you know the the fact that conservative mentality is so definite and so sure-footed is precisely why I don't take it seriously. If you can really reduce the human condition and all the iterations of humanity to this one fucking doctrine, it's because you're an idiot. It's not because you figured it out. Yeah. And let that just accidentally fall into the... Oh, that's my mom calling. Uh, I'll call her back. I already know what's about it. So 
It, it, it's something that can wait. It's something that can wait. <laughs> Mom, I'm sorry. I promise I'll call you back. <laughs> Text me if you need me. <laughs> everybody welcome back to the turn leftist podcast i'm mike here again as always with sterling ward and cosper and here again with us is jaron perlman author of the politics of fear how's it going jaron great man how about yourself not bad at all glad to have you back and uh we've also invited jaron to stay with us permanently we had such a good time with him last week and he just killed it so hard that we felt we couldn't do it without him so we're gonna keep jaron on as long as he's willing to stay with us so welcome everybody jaron to the podcast Appreciate it, you guys. Dude, glad to have you, man. Absolutely. So we are going to continue our uh, series of Reagan and Thatcher. This is now part two on Reagan because we realized we had more than enough to fit into one episode. Uh, hopefully we can fit all the rest that we have into this second episode. If not, we may bleed into the Thatcher episode next week. We'll see how it goes time-wise. Tonight, I'm going to be handing it to Sterling to talk about Iran-Contra and to Ward to be talking about Gary Webb. And then to Cosper is going to do a little analysis of Reagan's legacy and postmodern conservatism. So I think we'll start off with you, Sterling. Let's get into the Iran-Contra thing, because I think that's probably going to be the juiciest thing we have tonight. Okay, let's see here. So <laughs> the Iran-Contra thing is, is pretty convoluted. Everything's jumbled up because so much information comes out way after it happens, way after the fact. Some things are, we hear from other people. And as I was preparing this, it also kind of naturally is a little convoluted. So I've tried to clean this up as best I can because explaining Iran-Contra, my best interpretation is, are we all familiar with the Charlie Day picture from Always Sunny where he's got the bulletin board and he's connecting all the fucking strings in the bell room and it just looks fucking crazy. Like that's literally what it's like trying to piece all this shit together. Um, So I'm going to give you guys kind of a few of the the key points that I'm going to connect my little red strings to. Uh, So first one is, during the previous Carter administration, the U.S. places an embargo on Iran, which completely bans selling or trading weapons in any fashion uh, to Iran. It comes with a lot of other restrictions, and basically, for several different reasons, they thought of, you know, Iran as either largely influenced by terrorists or supporting what the U.S. considered terrorist organizations and, you know, the whole we don't negotiate with terrorists and we don't fund terrorists. So we know that's not true. But (laughs) that's why Congress did not want to in any way fund or allocate weaponry to Iran. Anyway, so fast forward, you then get Reagan sworn into office. It was at 81, early 80s. Uh, shortly after, Congress passes what's known as the Boland Amendment, which prevented the U.S. from funding the Contra militia in Nicaragua due to the fact that one of the primary incomes of the Contra, if not the only, you know, it basically was exporting cocaine and stealing money from other people. Like, those were their Mm. big sources of income. And so, you know, Congress knew that we were already uh, giving money to to this Contra militia 
and they wanted to stop that. They're like, these guys are making all their money in, in the drug trade and we should not be funding them. Reagan, however, was a big time supporter of the Contras. You know, he considered them freedom fighters and he believed in their goal, which was overthrowing the quote unquote Nicaragua communist government, which is the Sandinistas. Mm -hmm. The Sandinistas were the current you know, controllers of the government. They they were very left-leaning to call them communists. I mean, can you call a government communist? That's kind of a oxymoron. Now, the Contra's goal was exactly that simple. They wanted to overthrow the Sandinistas and control Nicaragua and that be their new headquarters, their, their new home base. The current communist-leaning government, of course, was the Sandinistas in control of Nicaragua. The Sandinistas were basically what you would call a peasant army that represented the voice of the people that rose up and succeeded in overthrowing the previous fascist government uh, that was prior controlling Nicaragua. Basically, all the people got together and got so sick of it, it led to a revolution. They took control, and it was a, a very left-leaning government, you know, for the people. They were largely inspired by Fidel Castro and Che Guevara's Cuban Revolution, obviously the Red Revolution, but the Cuban Revolution had, you know, just happened in their time, so they were hyped up about it. They were in communication with some of these people. Uh, they also maintained ties with the Soviet Union, I think they actually had some kind of war pact. I don't know if it's a war pact, but it's some kind of mutual type of protection. I'm not really sure what Nicaragua offered the Soviet Union, but that's something we'd have to dive into another day. So the CIA plays a key role in training and funding the Contras army up to this point. They wanted to help succeed in overthrowing the Sandinista government. After the Bolin Amendment, this became much harder because literally Congress is like, we know who these people are. We don't want you funding them. CIA, you know, of course, always just listens to Congress and, you know, stops doing something that they're told not to do that is mm -hmm. immoral or destroying parts of the world. So clearly the CIA wanted to come up with a way to get around this. So now we're jumping ahead to Oliver North, who is still alive today, by the way. He's 77. He constantly is going on these far right wing TV, Internet and radio shows all the time. He was on Fox News for a while and then he retired and took a position with the NRA as far as I know. I did yeah. have a couple of questions, um, Sterling. Yeah. I don't know if you have the answers off the top of your head, but regarding the Sandinistas and this supposedly communist government, how communist was it? I mean, we call the Soviet Union well, like a communist government. Obviously, it wasn't like perfect communism, but. Yeah, I mean, the big thing about it, and I'm not super educated on the Sandinistas, I know there's actually a lot of leftists that are not pro-Sandinista, and they had a lot of issues with their government and what they considered communism. But at the end of the day, the thing about the Sandinistas is they were very military-oriented because they just finished a revolution. They were a military to begin with, a peasant military, but a military, and they mm -hmm. were trying to figure out how to establish a government. They were taking a lot of lead from the Soviet Union and from the Cuban Revolution, but they hadn't got it right. I mean, do I think that their government was perfect? I mean, none of us think that. Of course not. Yeah. But 
I do think that they were removing very dangerous capitalist components from their country and from their government and breaking ties with other countries that were exploiting their country, exploiting their people, exploiting their resources. And I'm sure the prior uh, government had a lot of mineral trade deals, mining deals with the U.S. Because that later on, as I'll talk about, you start to realize that that's like the CIA's big objective here is to get mineral rights in Nicaragua. Of course. Exactly. So also, let's keep this in mind. After they succeeded in Nicaragua, that wasn't their only threat to the U.S. They also started to help train other South American countries. They were arming them. They were teaching them how to use their weapons. They were teaching them, you know, different communist, socialist, left-leaning theories. And they were helping others succeed in revolution, too. Not really anyone else had really succeeded a revolution to the degree they did. But they were obviously becoming a, a component and a proponent for that type of revolution in South America. And I think that may have scared the U.S. even more than their success of taking control of Nicaragua did. Yeah, nothing scares the U.S. more than that domino effect of communism taking over. Yeah, that's that's really what it was. Because, I mean, there was nothing about the Contras that the U.S. liked. There was nothing about the Contras that the CIA really cared about. They were just the best equipped to take on this communist control that very well, like you said, could have domino effect into the rest of South America. You know, definitely just to further your point, this is not an anomaly in uh, U.S. actions. I mean, I said it on our last (laughs) podcast episode, usually what we do is we find the craziest, most fundamental faction of people given the region and help bring them to power with a mutual understanding that they're going to help us in some economic or militaristic way. Yeah. And, you know, just case in point, I'm not trying to get away from the Contras because I want to continue on that train. But just for the record, we look at the Ukrainian civil war very recently. Um, U.S. aid was supplied to the Azov Battalion and Svoboda nationalists, which for all intents and purposes, they are actual literal neo-Nazis. Yeah. But we don't have a problem with that because they will serve our interests in the short term. So. Mm-hmm. This is a very common tactic with U.S. and Western imperialism. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty crazy how that pattern keeps emerging. It's like, (laughs) you know, if you just trust the U.S. history version of it, it's like, oh, we just keep bringing freedom to all these countries and it just seems to turn out worse afterwards. For some reason, we can't really figure out why, but we just have to do it harder, I guess, next time. But then when you actually look at the real history of it, it's like, oh, we just keep arming these far right militias and these complete neo-fascists, you know, wherever they arise up, we just keep arming them because we want to take out whatever government, you know, democratically elected, left leaning, gets into power and threatens to nationalize resources that we want because it's good for business interests. It's just the same thing over and over again. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the conscious were terrible, murderous bastards that, you know, I mean, they were just cocaine smugglers. And most of the access to the, like, the cocaine they had was stolen. Like, they would go to these countries that was growing it or had the potential to grow it, and they would take control of these regions. Like, at gunpoint, murder entire villages and shit. And the CIA is like, damn, those seem like really good people that should be in charge of the Nicaragua. <laughs> <laughs> The founding fathers of Nicaragua. Yes! <laughs> the fucking freedom fighters. Yeah, freedom from your life at the barrel of a gun. So back to Oliver North. Obviously, that, that's a name that fairly most people either know or it rings a bell, and they're not really sure why it rings a bell. Oliver North, again, the 77-year-old, still alive, right-wing, quote-unquote, military mm-hmm. historian, held a position in the NRA. I'm not sure if he actively does now, but I think Jaron's right that he at least did. 
Oliver North held the title of Deputy Director of Political Military Affairs in a secret military network that unofficially answered to the CIA director at the time, William Casey, and then officially answered to his direct supervisor, Robert McFarland, the National Security Advisor, directly to Reagan. Let's see here. His direct supervisor, Robert McFarlane, was told by Reagan to fund the Contras regardless of the Boland Amendment at any cost. Just figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Basically, and it's funny, like Reagan really kind of talked in in a lot of the same ways that Trump does. Like Reagan doesn't say things like, hey, go around the Boland Amendment and fund the Contras. Like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) the the shit that liberals think we're going to find in the Mueller report Mm -hmm. type lines from Trump. And it's like, no, no one's that dumb. They don't talk like that. So he talked in code in the in the same way that Trump does. And you know how it is. It's like, oh, no, they need to succeed and you need to see that they do succeed, mm-hmm. you know, type of uh, lines. And it, it's also important to know that uh, North was often directed by the CIA director. But with Reagan, it was almost always through the National Security Advisor. So, in other words, the CIA director, even though it wasn't technically supposed to be telling North what to do, he would just straight up like call him and tell him, hey, this is what you need to do. Here's how you need to do it. Oh, uh, Reagan never, obviously Reagan didn't call Oliver North. And I think a lot of people think that because Oliver North went on record basically saying that Reagan was aware of everything they were doing. But it wasn't because Reagan was telling Oliver North. Reagan was telling this to Robert McFarland, who was then, you know, telling Oliver North, hey, Reagan says we, we need to get this done he's aware of it going on mm-hmm. oliver north is is a military guy he's like you know when an advisor tells him hey you need to go around the boland amendment he's not like oh yeah that sounds good to me boss <laughs> and does it he's like he's like well, well hold up like what is how are we doing he's like hey this is from reagan himself and he's like well okay and then he would do it because it's like, you know, that whole side believes that the Constitution's important, but the president supersedes the Constitution. Yeah, if the president does it, it's not illegal. Exactly. How could it be? That definitely harkens to Trumpism. Whose defense was that? Was that Trump or was it? It was literally something that they said, like, if the president does it, it's not illegal. I think it was Nixon, actually. I think it was when Nixon was no. going down for Watergate that that was one of his comments that when the president does it, it's not illegal, which how that play out for him? <laughs> Well, he didn't get arrested. No, he didn't, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was it was Nixon. People thinking Trump's going to face the music. <laughs> oh, it was Nixon. Yeah, I just looked it up. Cool. So, in 1985, a group of Americans get held hostage in Lebanon. Is, that's how you pronounce it, right? Lebanon. 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 Jesus Christ. I knew this I was saying that wrong. This is the second time you've done that this. That is the second time. <laughs> hey, at least I at least I knew I was doing it wrong. <laughs> Okay, Lebanon. Uh, We had a couple Americans held hostage. 1985, Reagan tells McFarlane, do whatever it takes to get these hostages released. In fact, his exact quote was, I want you to do whatever you have to do to help these people keep body and soul together. And see what I'm saying? He talks like Trump. It's like this fucking code. But he just has this evangelical way of wording things where Trump is like mm-hmm. a wannabe mob boss. <laughs> like <laughs> Reagan is the fucking preacher on the bullpit who's just trying to figure out a way to run the collection played around twice in one sermon. Yeah. Let's Whereas see Trump is just like an 80s sitcom. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. So McFarlane, you know, he hears Reagan loud and clear. He brokers the deal to give Iran weapons, despite the embargo that I mentioned earlier, for Iran's help in freeing the American hostages. Basically, the theory is, you know, Iran's got some military forces down there. They are really wanting these weapons. We honestly want to give them to them anyway because we want them to fuck up uh, Lebanon. And so that's that's the deal. Iran's like, hey... We're about it. You know what we need. Let's do this. And so they they give him the weapon. Approximately $30 million was allocated for this. What's also interesting here is that this happened just like I think a few days after Reagan went on TV and insisted that under no circumstances would the U.S. negotiate with terrorists. Because he's saying Lebanon or these terrorists that have taken our people hostage, we will not negotiate. But yet... Iran, who you have labeled terrorist and you will not negotiate or provide arms to them because of their terrorist affiliation, you're going to give them $30 million worth of uh, weaponry to literally go and begin this war. One of my favorite things to do is framing a lot of these these older uh, historical events in something that relates currently because, I mean, that's why we talk about this is yeah. because it has some impact on our current world. So. Just to clear up why this was occurring in Lebanon when we're dealing with Iranians is because yeah. of the presence of Hezbollah, which is a very yes. active uh, Shia militant group there, which ironically, uh, Hezbollah has been one of the key fighters currently in Syria and Lebanon and Iraq against ISIS, which is a whole other subject. But I know I mentioned how the U.S. likes to arm crazy people, and I'll just leave mm-hmm. it at that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, the the legacy of Hezbollah from this hostage situation until now uh, in current events, it's a very interesting story. And I just thought maybe the listeners might want to know why exactly Iran is over here, Lebanon's over here, and what do they have to do with each other? Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah, because Hezbollah actually at that point was... Like you said, it's one of the key factors that we had the embargo on Iran. It was specifically Hezbollah. Yep. Let's see here. So, uh, again, like I said, Reagan, under no circumstances, he going to negotiate with terrorists. Of course, they go and allocate $30 million for the weapons to go to Iran. Oliver North comes back into play to help the CIA take a portion of this money and fund weapon purchases to the Contras in Nicaragua. Because obviously at this point, the Congress has cut off funding the Nicaraguans. So their idea is if they funnel the money through Oliver North and have Oliver North play the role of delivering the $30 million to Iran, well, who's ever going to check the books? So we can dump, let's say we just dump a couple million dollars of the $30 million. We're still going to get most of it to Iran, but we're going to shave off a couple pennies, you know, as it passes through Oliver North's hands, uh, let that find its way into the Contras, and we're not exactly directly funding them in the way that would piss off the Congress. So, how many pennies do they shave off? Well, approximately 18 million, because only 12 million actually made its way to Iran, so Oof. yeah, the large majority of this deal... I thought you were going to say they gave them like two or something. No, no it's like, the large majority of this that was supposed to go to Iran to help free American hostages literally just went to the Contras to overthrow another government. Like That is convoluted as 
fuck. You see what I'm saying? The, the strings are starting to connect, and there's a fucking lot yep. of them. So <sighs> fast forward to like the 85, 86. It starts coming out what's going on. At the time, Reagan, of course, denies having known anything how it played out. He insisted he played no part in negotiating with terrorists or funding the Contras. North then comes back into play, testifies in Congress for like days, and states that Reagan not only was aware, he was directing McFarlane to see all of this done. And North said, he's like, look, if he broke the law, he was willing to face punishment, but he was acting as directed and it wasn't McFarlane just making this up. Of course, it ends up that, you know, after his testimony's done and they actually go to press charges, Reagan never actually faces charges. He's never actually impeached, though. After that, that's basically the rest of Reagan's entire presidency. He's constantly under the gun of, are they going to impeach me over this? And it's like, now we remember Reagan really only for, you know, the quote-unquote good things he did that conservatives remember him for. But during Reagan's presidency, presidency, it really was much like Trump's presidency where he's just constantly under attack because there's so much shit going wrong. But, you know, we sweep all that under the rug and then we can only remember the good about Reagan. And I'm telling you, fast forward us 20 years and see what we remember about Trump. No one's going to give a shit about, you know, the Ukraine and all this. We're going to remember that, yeah. you know, Trump, he built that wall or at least a few small portions of it. <laughs> Yeah, that was immediately what I thought of when uh, when you were saying that. It's just like it made me think of the whole Trump impeachment thing and how funny it is to me when liberals now think that he's going to go to jail. And I just oh my God. I just have to laugh because it's like when you think of the amount of illegal shit that every president has done. And this is a great example. Like it's a lot more illegal, probably just worse morally on a just objective scale to arm terrorists and have them killing people than it is to maybe collude with Russia about some Facebook shit or to get them to try to sway an election in your favor. Like people think that this is going to be some smoking gun that's going to get Trump locked up. It's like, yep. sorry, got bad news for you. It's not going to happen. Yeah. We all think that Trump is going to, you know, end up this president who's drugged for like the next hundred years. And anytime his name is brought up, it's going to be in this negative light and all the things he's done wrong. But truth be told, given enough time, he is going to be remembered just like Reagan. There will absolutely be a museum for Trump after he passes away which hopefully is sooner than mm -hmm. later, not for the museum, <laughs> but he will be praised just in the same light that Ronald Reagan is, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. I would be willing to say that it's already happening to a large part. Yeah. Yeah, it really just depends who you talk to. Like 37% of the country is already there. Yeah, but what I'm saying is the, the Democrats are going to forget the bad of Trump. It's like during Reagan, oh, yeah. uh, obviously during Reagan's presidency, the Republicans were still defending him and they were still uh, this and that pro Reagan. But the opposition was even louder and even more convincing against Reagan. And that's how Trump is right now. Of course, the conservatives and the Republicans are just spouting from the heavens all of the greatness that is Donald J. Trump. But the Democrats are still very loud and they just succeeded you know, to at least impeach him, if even though they didn't remove him. Him. And we get both when we talk about Trump today. What I'm saying is when we talk about Trump in 20 years, 
the Democrats aren't even going to, there's going to be no more of this. It's going to be lost to history. It's going to be a few solid Netflix documentaries that get made over the next three or four years that everyone forgets about. (sighs) And then he's only going to be remembered in the light that the conservatives paint him. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be, I think, the issue that we're going to have a hard time avoiding tonight is relating this to current events and to Trump, just like we had a hard time not debating our libertarian guest last week. (laughs) But I think... um, that's what's really blowing my mind now is all the liberals who are already calling for pardoning Trump before there's ever even any charges <laughs> levied against him. They're all just saying like, oh, you know, just to preserve the integrity of the office and just to start soul to make of peace America. so we can reach across the aisle. Yeah. This, oh, God, dude, the soul of America <laughs> shit. I can't stand it. Jeez. Go back a couple episodes ago, by the way, when I called that shit. That's all I wanted. Yeah, dude, you called it like right on the head. You nailed it with the blue hats and the blue maggot. I mean, to that point of specificity, I didn't expect to be that on the money, right? But this is a common <laughs> terminology that we see within the majority of all of American yep. politics is there is this return that we must have, that things are not the way and so on, but we can get back to what we were. It's never this look of what is the future, what yeah. is to come, you know. We kind of seen this within someone like Obama, but the reality of his actions reveal that which is heavily embracing this form of across the aisle. Yeah. You know, let's work with the Republicans and so on and so on. I have more about that later. Yeah. And when people say across the aisle, it's it's not walking, you know, to the middle of the aisle and meeting there and coming up with a resolution together that benefits both across the aisle is 99% of the time is I'm just going to go over there and agree with you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, 100% is. I would say that American politics rely heavily on one of two things, which is either this weird misguided nostalgia that we see from people like Reagan or Trump, or this weird misguided notion of identity politics that we see from quote unquote progressive presidents like Obama, where it's like, I I mean, I even saw it today, Uh, the new secretary of defense, you know, I I read the liberal headlines, which is like first black secretary of defense, and then I read the (laughs) actual article, which is like Raytheon, Raytheon, you know, uh, official is about to be in charge of defense. So it really kind of fits (sighs) into those two areas where it's either we're trying to get back to something like Cosper was saying, or we're trying to move forward, but in this superficial half-assed way that doesn't actually manifest anything. Jaron, are you telling me you're not happy that we now have the black Dick Cheney in office? <laughs> Sounds pretty racist. Unless he's Jesus about to drop an Christ. album, I don't give a single shit. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, man. Yeah, I mean, it's just the whole liberal girl boss theory, you know, just change the group that you're talking about. Now it's black boss. Let's put a, a black guy in charge of that. Doesn't matter what the fuck he's about, where he's been, what he's done. More diverse oppressors. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That was a good Pelosi yes. clap. Yes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> oh, fuck. God, that just reminds me of how happy I am once again. I know I've mentioned this before, that I do not have that Nancy Pelosi tattoo that I almost got oh. when, she, when she tore what up that, that, spe- that speech of Donald Trump's. When she tore up that speech, it was so fucking sick. Like, I literally <laughs> almost got the hands tearing up the paper as a tattoo. Oh, thank God I didn't. <laughs> yes, queen. Yes, I was so lived up. <laughs> I forgot I was making that a running joke for like our first three episodes that I thought Nancy Pelosi was hot. I forgot all about that shit. I don't believe you were joking, Mike. I wasn't joking. <laughs> She's hot as fuck, dude. 
<laughs> oh shit! So you know, I mean, with, just the way of- she staples her face back every morning. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay, okay. Speaking of Pelosi, let's jump into some horrible, horrendous-looking shit. <laughs> <laughs> CIA director William Casey, uh, during like a two-hour briefing with Congress, accidentally let slip their plans of what they're going to do after the Contras succeed in overtaking Nicaragua, which was, of course, to begin mineral mining of the Nicaraguan harbors. Mm-hmm. Because the Contras were going to uh, give them all of the uh, mining rights in the harbors. In which the Congress loses their fucking shit. And they're like, wait, run that last sentence back, homie. And, one, you know, Congress goes crazy. News is out everywhere. I mean, it's like the biggest upset you've ever seen. One of the senators publicly uh, resigns from, like, whatever Central Intelligence Committee, I think is what he was on. Uh, says that it was a gross oversight and completely hiding the truth of what the Contra's involvement was meant for. And that we, our goal was not simply to take a military group and use them to overthrow a country so we could get mineral rights. And I'm like, well, you're kind of describing the United States, if I'm being honest. Like, that, that is kind of what you're about, homie. I mean, that's literally exactly what yes we were doing yes yes it's like did no one tell you this is what we do here we coo whoever we want (laughs) deal with it (laughs) so reagan god damn Reagan comes out basically as the leader of this whole plan to get the Contra army to take control so that the U.S. can gain mining rights Contra after overthrowing the current government. You name it. And this is only what's happening right here in Nicaragua. Because it obviously, like everything that the U.S. is involved in, this is just the small veneer, uh, the icing on the cake that runs so much deeper. What's happening in Nicaragua with the Santanistas, the Santanistas is, as I was saying earlier, they're completely supporting and helping train these other military forces that are also winning big battles and I wouldn't say wars, but they're winning big victories in in other areas of South America. Like I said, the Contras, they had control of all these regions that they were using to harvest cocaine. The Sandinistas were helping take control of a lot of these regions back. They were, you know, helping spread communist teachings. They were, you know, showing people, hey, like basically a lot of South America was still basically feudal at this point. And they were like, you don't have to live this way. Here are some alternatives. Look at what Cuba's doing. Look at what we're doing. And of course, that threatened the government. So it wasn't just about mining rights in Nicaragua, because a lot of people be like, why did the U.S. go through so much just to mine a few harbors? Like, you know, granted that helps, but is mining a few harbors worth the risk that they took or or even worth the money they were spending? Money, actually, yes, it was worth way more than 30 million, but it was like we were saying earlier, it's this domino effect And as soon as you let the Sandinistas succeed and help other South American countries succeed, it's eventually going to make its way to Mexico. And Mexico is basically the slave labor of the U.S. And the U.S., it doesn't want to lose what it has in South America, but it damn sure doesn't want to lose what it has in Mexico. I mean, I see a lot of items in a lot of our various rooms on the video, and I guarantee you between just what we see in our screens, we can at least pick out 10 items that say made in Mexico on them. Mm -hmm. Because that is where so much of our products get made, and 
you know, basically where we exploit labor the hardest. Yeah. And they, I mean, they already have to worry about the Zapatistas in uh, Mexico already, yeah. which has proven itself to have much more longevity than the U.S. is comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. And just to wrap mine up in this last part is something I, I'd like to probably come back and revisit in an entire episode in the future. But it's basically the CIA's involvement in the cocaine smuggling into the United States. And because we're dealing with Iran-Contra, because we're dealing with Reagan and the CIA, it is important to at least show how these things tie together, though I won't go into a whole lot of detail because honestly, I could go on for hours about this one topic. But later, of course, it comes out that, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. Obviously, the Contras are not succeeding at this point. The CIA can't get more money to them, giving them the $18 million. You know, turns out giving $18 million to a bunch of drug dealers, you know, doesn't always go fucking awesome. So, <laughs> so they're, they're still not winning. They're still not pulling this shit off. But the CIA still wants the Contras to win. And so... They're not doing well at this point either, because like I said, the Santanistas are also helping take land back from the Contras and take other resources to, that prevent the Contras from selling to other buyers. And at this point, the, the Contras honestly have way more cocaine than they need, but not many places to sell it. And they can't fund their war on Nicaragua with what they're working with. So the CIA is like, well... We tried to fund them directly. Congress said no. We tried to go around them and give them Iranian money. Congress said no. We've tried several other things, and it keeps failing. But at the end of the day, they have product that needs sold, and we definitely know there are buyers in the United States that would pay a lot for the quality of cocaine that they're selling. Mm -hmm. So the CIA then tries something new. They actually arrange buyers in the U.S. to meet with these Contra uh, military forces that are selling the cocaine and then make deals where they get the National Guard out of areas, they get Border Patrol out of areas, or they pay them off to look the other way, or they stage arrests, you know, act like they're coming in and taking over at the border when all they're really doing is just letting them through. And a lot of times it really would be like that. They would show up to the border and say, hey, there's a huge drug bus we're, we're doing. We need the Border Patrol to back up. This is CIA territory now. We're taking over this. And they'd show up with the SWAT vans and the, and the Border Patrol's like, oh shit, shit's getting real. And they would back up. And then the CIA acts like they're loading them all up in a van and, you know, arresting them. They take them to a warehouse, pat them on the back and say, whew, they totally bought that shit, man. Uh. <laughs> and then send, send them on their way, you know, fucking with probably a coffee or something. Oh my God, dude. And, and they did this for a while and, and they just keep funding the Contras. You know, we, we blame Reagan for a lot of this. I'm not aware of any actual quotes or statements or any direct like Reagan telling the CIA help them bring cocaine into the United States. But this happened under his watch. We know he already was directing the CIA to do all kinds of fucked up shit. We know that he was directing them to do all kinds of fucked up shit with the Contras specifically. So this kind of just ties back to what we say about Reagan talking in code, but in evangelical gangster mode code. So I think that it's totally realistic to think that Reagan told the CIA director, I don't care what you need to do make sure the Contras are able to make money. And I think that's what he took of that. And I think that's what Reagan probably meant. But that'll wrap up my section. What would you have, Jerem? 
Uh, I'll try and keep it short, but the, the only two things that kind of occur to me is accompanying the Reagan administration, the Iran-Contra affair, everything discussed in the last episode, is he was a big proponent of expanding the police state, the prison industrial complex yes. and things like that. And of course, accompanying that is the war on drugs. So we have a guy that is literally importing drugs and selling them in the United States illicitly while he is conversely expanding the war on drugs. Oh, yeah. And to me, I think that the idea that Reagan was somehow uninformed about this is a bit trivial because, you know, again, I, I really believe that the United States operates the way it does because we have a captive labor force. And in order to facilitate that, the war on drugs has been used post-civil rights and post-Jim uh, Crow laws. Yes, so in order to garner a larger unpaid workforce, I think that Reagan, in a very duplicitous manner, was bringing drugs in intentionally, knowing that drug arrests would go up, knowing that addiction rates would go up, Good specifically point. to channel those people into prison labor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is just like a win-win-win for anybody who's in the government who hates minorities, who wants to do evil shit in South America, and who wants to just do any kind of clandestine operations and fund them in some kind of secret way. And I mean, totally left out of this discussion, I just remembered while you were talking, Sterling, is the whole thing about Barry Seal. And I only know about him because of that Tom Cruise movie, uh, American Made, where he was the pilot that was, you know, bringing in drugs from, I think it was also Nicaragua. He, I mean, he was definitely involved with funding Contras, and I believe he was also involved in a couple other South American countries as well. But it's like, it must have just worked so well for them that they decided, yeah, let's just keep doing the same thing. It's a great pattern. We got a good business going here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that pretty much wraps up my whole segment. So it's all Cosper and Ward from here. All right, well, let's move on to Ward. Ward is now going to talk to us about Gary Webb and, uh, you know, his whole involvement with this whole scandal that was going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Gary Webb, he's the dude who broke it all, you know? He's the one who really, like, put it in the light for everybody. So I'm going to start off my little piece here for everybody. In April 1989, the U.S. Senate Committee on Terrorism, Narcotics, and International Operations, led by John Kerry, released the reports on rumors of CIA drug smuggling. In case anyone doesn't know, CIA, like we haven't brought it up yet, but the CIA stands for crack in America. <laughs> after, <laughs> after a three-year investigation sparked by um, an Associated Press article that came out in 1985 suggesting that drug smuggling was happening, the committee report concluded that the CIA officials were aware of smuggling activities of some of their operatives who supported the Contras. And just as the media would do to Gary Webb in the next decade, they tried to bury this story and discredit Kerry, such as Newsweek calling him a Randy conspiracy buff, which just makes me think of an amalgamation of Alex Jones and Austin Powers. But for the time, I guess <laughs> it would have been considered a sick burn. <laughs> just to get it out of the way, there were some shortcomings in Webb's reporting, but his thesis was correct. The consensus is that he probably overstated how much money was made by a couple of his sources and what percentage of profits went to the Contras. But his central thesis that the CIA had participated in narcotics trafficking in Central America is correct. It's simply a fact. Webb's part of the story with the Iran-Contra affair starts in 1996 when he wrote a three-article series dubbed Dark Alliance for San Jose Mercury News. Uh, later, he would publish a book under the same title that would expand on the series. In the series, he claimed that the CIA was partly responsible for trafficking cocaine into the U.S. in the 80s. He put a spotlight on the hypocrisy of America and the Reagan-Bush administration at the time. Webb was aiming at the government's deceptions and lies. While the Reagan administration was telling youths, just say no to drugs, they were also saying, just don't know, about their own anti-communist <laughs> allies involved in drug trafficking. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, at the same time, they're deregulating industry, crushing unions, outsourcing manufacturing, 
and defunding social programs in the inner city, while at the same time sending thousands of young men of color away to prison for decades for small amounts of crack cocaine that his administration was bringing in. The series got aggressive backlash from major media corporations, um, spending considerable resources just to discredit him. I think it was the Washington Post assigned 17 guys just to discredit Gary Webb. Um, But yeah, but the media outlets weren't alone in this. They were aided by the CIA. A CIA directorate of intelligence staffer described at the time that the CIA had, quote, a ground base of already productive relationships with journalists. Simply put, and because I really want to use this word, they were in cahoots. (laughs) (laughs) Operation Mockingbird, baby. Exactly. Yeah, they were successful in uh, discouraging one major affiliate from publishing the story, according to Nicholas, and I'm probably going to butcher this, Dushmovic. That's what I'm sticking with. He was a uh, CIA director, director of intelligence staffer. Um, Dushmovic also boasted that the agency effectively departed from its own longstanding policies in order to discredit the series. Quote, for example, in order to help a journalist working on a story that would undermine the Mercury News allegations, Public Affairs was able to deny any affiliation of a particular individual, which is a rare exception to the general policy that the CIA does not comment on any individual's alleged CIA ties. His own paper would even publish a retraction and send him to Cupertino, writing obituaries. In 1998, Gary Webb would be proven correct when the CIA's own inspector general released in a report stated that scores of operatives were implicated in the cocaine smuggling and that other agencies ignored it rather than reveal the information that would harm the Reagan-Bush administration. The chief of the CIA's Central America Task Force was quoted saying, with respect to drug trafficking by the resistance forces, it was not a couple of people. It is a lot of people. Call it a coincidence or conspiracy, but the report in 1998 was published on the same day that the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke, causing it to be ignored or just briefly summarized in the back pages of newspapers. Yeah, what a coincidence, right? Exactly. Yikes. You know, convenient. <laughs> you know, if you do actually look at some of the statements involved, we don't just have John Kerry and Gary Webb and uh, a slew of other people admitting to this, but we even have Juan Pablo Escobar talking about his father's involvement with the CIA. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but who really trusts an Escobar, you know? <laughs> What's he got to lose? True. Now, I, w- yeah. I would love yep. to even do an Escobar. God, we, we're piling up too many ideas for future episodes. Dude, that's not a bad thing. Let's True. just have you yeah. know, more things to talk about, the better. It's still early in our podcast, man. we got plenty of things oh, we can yeah. talk about. Oh, yeah. And just to, um, just to wrap up my little bit on Gary Webb is um, being correct is injustice. You know, Webb was right. He called it. He had a few oversights, but in the end, he was absolutely right. But Webb's reputation was tarnished. And in 2004, Webb was found dead in his home as a result of two gunshot wounds to the head. And it was ruled a suicide. Well, I'm convinced. Right? Yeah, he's joined a, a very long list of, of journalists, though. I can think of two just to sort of illustrate a point even beyond drugs, that this freedom of press that we perceive globally, or at least in the United States, is very much stilted. If we look at like Daphne Gazalia, she reported on the Panama Papers which uh, exposed exactly how much is being held offshore by the world's rich elite. She died in a car bombing, not so coincidentally. If we look at Serena Shim, who's reporting from the Syrian front with the ISIS war, 
she reported that NGO trucks were being sent in by NATO through the Turkish border to supply ISIS with guns and rations and medical supplies. And then she winds up dead. So, you know, there is definitely a sort of threshold that's appropriate to talk about. And Gary Webb broke that threshold. And I, I do believe that, you know, he paid a price for it. Yeah, there's a, um, a couple sources. Journalist uh, Nick Shu, he's a guy who wrote the biography on Gary Webb that was published in 2006. It shares the same name as the movie that's currently on Netflix about Gary Webb starring uh, Jeremy Renner, Kill the Messenger. He was longtime friends with Gary Webb, and he's convinced that it was suicide. Uh, Webb's former wife and mother of his three children, Susan Bell, also believed that he committed his suicide. But on the alternate side, other friends of Gary Webb, such as like the guys from the Associated Post article that first came out about the cocaine smuggling in 1985 that didn't want to go on record and was saying that I told Webb to stay away from the story. We know what the powers that be are going to do. Stay away. So I personally, I don't even know. I think I could go either way. It's not unbelievable to me that he was killed for what he revealed. This just reminds me of this meme that's been going around here recently. The uh, picture of a bullet and it says the CIA award for excellence in journalism. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, posted yeah, that one. I will say that I saw this movie a while ago and it prompted me to look up the possibility of him having committed suicide by shooting himself in the head twice. And I did find <laughs> other websites that say it is possible. Like there have been other people who have committed suicide by shooting themselves in the head. And I guess the first one wasn't successful and then they shot themselves again. Like it's terrible to think about, but I mean, it is a possibility. And I will say I'm not particularly conspiratorially minded. I don't tend to believe in like crazy conspiracies. Like uh, I know last week I joked about the cabal that was actually prompting Reagan to institute trickle-down economics and everything. And I hope people realize that was a fucking (laughs) joke. Like, I'm not a QAnon guy at all. Because just in my mind, it doesn't seem like conspiracy theories are really all that necessary because it seems like it's all just right out in the open. Like, if you realize how capitalism works, that's the fucking conspiracy. If nobody's hiding it, it's right there in front of you. It's controlling every aspect of your life. You don't need to hide anything because people are already just okay, being laptops for capital, they're going along with it, so there's no need to hide it. Just seems, I could definitely go either way on it. Like, you could convince me that he was shot by the CIA. You could convince me that he was so broken down by the CIA that he just decided to kill himself because they ruined his life. Like, just right out in the open, they did. Sure. I heard that after he shot himself in the head the second time that he went on to pour gas around his entire home, light it on fire. <laughs> And then he sprinkled crack around himself when he was done. Yeah. yeah, just a little bit. And then he voted for Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, thought you were at least going to go nader with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was seeing uh, an interview with his wife saying like if she thought it was suicide. And she was saying like the reports that she got was that the first round exited his cheek on the left side. And then the second round somehow got lodged in his carotid artery. And that's what killed him. Mm. So he pulled a fight club and then he finished the job. Basically. (laughs) If that's the side you want to believe. Yeah, you could also say that like, you know, maybe his wife is just a little smarter than Gary Webb and said, I'm not going to have you guys killing me too. No, he killed himself. Leave me alone. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. That's a smart move. Yeah. I mean, definitely when you look at the CIA as an entity that does operate extrajudicially and, uh, you know, it's well known for using black sites. It's well known for circumventing constitutional law. And it's well known for being, you know, only in contact with the executive branch, which need I remind anybody, 
operates above the law anyway. I could certainly be convinced that they would execute journalists or execute whomever the fuck they really want literally anywhere in the world. Yeah. yeah. Or drive them to the point of insanity. What I found so hilarious about people thinking that with the Mueller report that they were going to get all this information from the CIA to paint this horrible picture of Trump. I'm like, half of this shit was probably working in fucking unison with the CIA. They're not going to give you this. Like, do you know who the CIA is? Like, of course, the Mueller report. And first of all, the Mueller report actually didn't have a lot of damning stuff in it. Most Republicans are like, oh, there was nothing there. It's like, no, there was a lot there. But was it the smoking gun? everyone was expecting no because look who the fuck you were asking to give you the smoking <laughs> gun sterling look who you're asking to read a report you're asking conservatives <laughs> to read that's a big ask no it's true very true very true i've literally had uh conversations with conservative family members and it got to the Mueller report and they're like oh what did you actually read it and i was like yeah actually three times both copies and like Really? And I'm like, yes. Did you not? And they're like, well, no, you know, I skimmed it. And I'm like, fuck off. All right. Well, I think now we will hand it to Cosper. And Cosper is going to talk a little bit about uh, Reagan's legacy and how that has affected conservatism up until this very day and shifted us into what we now call postmodern conservatism. So why don't you take it away, Cosper, and let us know what you have. Well, I think that when we talk about someone like Reagan, we have to acknowledge that we're not just talking about the man or trickle-down economics, or the doubling down about the war on drugs. We're talking more specifically about the implications of all the aspects that complete the myth that is Reagan, and how this has perpetuated and morphed into modernity. So I guess the first question we get brought to is, what is the myth in this context? And the context and definition at which I'm using will be, myths are very powerful in constructing belief and the big ideology at which the time they are constructed. They're built on the language and the images which combine into symbols as signs themselves having meaning developed within them. These symbols effectively serve as signifiers in the narrative of this myth. And the more so dangerous thing about this myth and them in themselves is that they need not function within a factual basis in order to be effective in themselves because they operate with a signifier that often serve to trigger things such as anger, jealousy, emotion, or more commonly in the situations that are to come, and especially in correlation with someone like Reagan, fear. This usage of such deforms reality as we see it into the symbolic connections to prey upon your desires and or fears that you associate with the candidate in this case, that which then you believe forms your identity. And in the case of Reagan, the identity of the United States. And more so than this, this constructs the worldview that you incorporate into your daily life and the way that you interpret reality in itself. To touch on this, signs are rooted within words and or images, either visual or mental. And in myth, signs can be almost any meaning you wish to inscribe with it. The idea goes that in ordinary speech, words defer to things and concepts and together they form a signifier with a relatively stable meaning. With the accompaniment of myth, the signifier then takes whatever shape wants to be inscribed upon it, and thus creating a very less stable world of meaning. In this situation, take for example a snake. In its mythological context, it represents some abstraction or concept, typically associated with sin, lust, cheating, what have you. Right. In a similar way, I would say if we look to Reagan, we can take a quote that goes something as, I would rather my little girls die now free and believing in God than have them to grow up in communism and to die no longer believing in God. 
In a comment Jeez, like that's this, Reagan? praise not only on the fears of many Americans who believe in God forming the symbolic connection that communism innately entails atheism and the lack there of freedom within such a system, but also preying on the desires of those who wish to continue their belief in God and have a strong connection with freedom in itself. Not only is this ideological innate right in a Kantian term, but also within something that constructs the reality at which we view as America. That's crazy. And I mean, a lot of things about Reagan are crazy, but that quote is crazy. No, that is absolutely some cult shit, dude. That is nuts. That's the thing about it is that it need not, like I said, operate within an objective view of reality and a factual basis. It needs to have a signifier that derives from an emotional and pathological connection within someone's viewpoint of the world. I think that's one thing that is really going to tie Reagan's legacy into Thatcher's, uh, which we're not going to talk about tonight, but moving forward is, you know, when you understand who Margaret Thatcher was and her connection to the Anglican Church, which was the Church of England, which is what Henry VIII had. This is definitely more my wife's territory here. She's, she's definitely into like theocracy and uh, Christian supremacy, especially, and just the, the historical dialogue surrounding it. But Margaret Thatcher's legacy was very much connected to Reagan's insofar as Christianity and the accompanying themes of that. No, that's absolutely correct. I would like to, in that aspect, look at Reagan as the embodiment of that which perpetuates Christianity. The association that's been derived from him is that of a Christian America. Even when, sure, he believed in God, but it doesn't become the case that to be a Christian, you must invoke and perpetuate the ideas and customs that Reagan did as well. But I also think when we're talking about this, we must draw the line tangentially to someone like Obama and similarities. In the case of Obama, you have people who are scared, looking for meaning within this world. of. To me, Obama was the second coming of Reagan, not Trump. I mean, Obama was the one that repackaged actual conservative, crazy right-wing shit and tried to present it in a way that it would help the American people, which to me is the whole playbook of Reagan. Which is ironic, because at the same time he was doing that, he also was provoking such a reaction just because of the color of his skin, I think, in the right, that it prompted them to like go full hog with this victimization narrative that they have, where they feel like they're all of a sudden losing their place of privilege in this country. And part of what is a core of postmodern conservatism is that they will latch on to some parts of what makes people so feel so uncertain. Like everybody's precarious. Everybody is on the verge of losing their job and it's only getting worse with every year. And that's yeah. how fascism takes hold because it latches onto that, but then gives you the completely wrong prescriptions. And they say that it's this group of people yes. or it's that group of people. That's what they do is they have all the, some of the right diagnoses and all the wrong prescriptions. I completely agree with this preying on people being prevalent within someone like Obama. This recognition almost an awareness that people sort of have in like the later 2000s, right before 2010, when Barack Obama, the stock market was crashing and stuff, there was a recognition that what we were doing was not working. So we looked to someone who could promise change and hope as an advertisement. With that, we got another myth that conceptualizes itself in that narrative of this change, this belief, this hope, something we can guarantee ourselves on, also packaged in something we've never seen before, which is also very appealing to millions of people throughout the country. But I think Beyond that, we have to look at the fact that these things were lies. Yes. <laughs> Spoiler. Well, I think the ties, I mean, literally directly into the Iran-Contra affair. Insofar as Obama's concerned, we can talk about the violent overthrowing of the Honduran government under Manuel Zelaya, 
which, you know, this is a guy who was into leftist politics. He was a guy that wanted his country to be compensated fairly for the resources that it was giving forth and also for its valuable geography. Because the thing about Central America and Cuba is that it literally is the gateway to the world. If you control that, the Suez Canal and Singapore, then you're basically in fucking charge. You know, with the Obama administration, he actually met a lot of resistance with how he handled Honduras, as he damn well should have, because it was a violent and horrible coup that a lot of liberals were not even aware of because of willful ignorance. And to me, that is an extension of not just the mentality, but the practice that we saw under Reagan in the Iran-Contra affair. Are you saying liberals did not defend against the greater good? <laughs> no, I would never suggest that, man. <laughs> so you're not saying that liberals are the doormats to fascism? <laughs> no, they're <laughs> God damn. They're the toilet paper. <laughs> I think the important thing to draw from both of these cases is this myth that comes with both of these characters. You know, we look at someone like Reagan. And we can see even in modernity, if you ask someone in their later 40s or something of like, what do you think about Reagan? You get the generality of he was a good guy. He was stood up for what he believed in and so on. Right. <laughs> you know, we have. I don't know. <laughs> right. We have this this ethos of Reagan living on within uh, modernity and Americans. Yeah, yeah. It, same thing goes on with Obama. But to, because of how recent he is, is much more exasperated as a, I wish I could go yep. back to him. You ask any Republican, I wish I could go back to Reagan. But we now have the opportunity to look back at recent history and see the results of Reaganomics and how they've been turned into a myth by the rhetoric of many. But in this case, this postmodern conservative figure, this Trump. And But before I jump into that, I just want to say a good bit of what I'm drawing here is largely inspired from Matthew McCainus and his book, which I highly recommend. It's on postmodern conservatism. I should set this up by giving two definitions by what I mean by postmodern conservatism. Uh, the first of which being postmodern. In this context, it's a reaction to grand narratives that posit uh, universal normative standards for which should be done in every local context. And by reaction, I mean an inspection of what is this general or grand narrative that has been perpetuated and how can we counteract it? How can we go against it? For conservative, I'm using a definition that goes like this. It's a political philosophy that appeals to tradition by suggesting that social and political change should take place slowly, if at all. And the synthesis of these two ideas results in postmodern conservatism being an appeal to traditional normative standards, and it does so as a rejection of the grand narrative, which now would be the liberal open mindfulness to multiculturalism and so on. This way, we can avoid the messiness of social and political change, ultimately serving identities that are rooted within nostalgia. And that's why we see figures like Trump rise that are rooted within this nostalgia of making America great again and an appeal to Reaganism, thus preserving the dream and the myth that was set up by him and those who came before Reagan as well. We have to ask ourselves, what gives rise to figures like Trump? And you may say something like, of course, capitalism does. And I just think that's entirely too simplistic of an answer. It's like if you were to try to ask yourself, what makes my drink give off condensation, you might say because it's cold. But the series of events that leads to this condensation are much more complex than just the liquid being cold in itself. And if we stop there, we will never understand the complexity or the entirety of it, similarly to the problems that we face today. If we just stop at it being capitalism, I think we fall short of grasping the problem at its root and understanding the intricacies behind the human nature that enables a system such as itself to take hold. When we do this, we must also ask ourselves, 
similarly to how many of us stop at you know what is value how do we derive value and we and we say something like labor i think that the further question that we must ask ourselves is how do humans conceptualize value in itself because i don't know that's at least a fault i see within the left as it be today well, I, I think that something we touched on in the last episode applies here. Um, you know, we were talking about human nature and, of course, as an anarchist, which is insanely philosophical and has very little to do with actual praxis. That's what I deal with mostly. So there's a really interesting case study that I covered actually in my first book about the Congo River and when it was created and it separated these groups of chimpanzees that now live upon the northern and southern banks of the Congo, uh, respectively. And what we have discovered, and keep in mind, they're very closely related to us. The chimps in the north have a deficit in resources, so they tend to be patriarchal, they tend to be tribal, they tend to be violent towards one another. And then the chimps to the south, who live primarily in a resource-rich area, tend to be matriarchal, they tend to be uh, very loving, and we refer to them as bonobos, and they just bang each other all the time. And that's how they Mm -hmm. usually resolve (laughs) conflicts. So if you do look at this disparity, it's one of nature's great experiments in the Congo, we actually see that I believe the human condition is very much tied to resource availability. And then it becomes a question of how the state distributes resources, not so much what is innately contained within us as humans, but what is available to us once we become sentient. And that is part of the reason that I think there is far more emphasis on the setting and not necessarily the inherent condition. Because the inherent condition, if there are resources, is that we're pretty fucking chill. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, I've heard that um, humans are actually descended from bonobos rather than from chimpanzees or some other strain of ape. And that explains why we should be a matriarchal society. And that I usually hear it in the context of explaining why indigenous societies worked better and were able to have more of a homeostasis with their environment, whereas capitalism just rapes and pillages and results in imperialism every time. Well, the only thing, other thing I'll add to that point to kind of play off of yours is the, the bonobo model is something that was retained by a lot of indigenous people. Not all. It's very hard to generalize. But a lot of indigenous people were matriarchal and they did have an abundance of resources and there wasn't a lot of prolonged war. The standard model of capitalism definitely emerged from feudalism. So we're talking about Europe and we're talking about a landscape that is a bit resource scarce based on the population. Hmm. So I think that the, the predominant model of capitalism having expanded to the entire world did initially come in its modern form from Europe. And the lack of resource distribution there uh, had a lot to do with this bonobo chimp model in the Congo River. It was modeled after something that was inherently violent because of the lack of resources available. You know, I think that this argument of human nature and stuff like that is somewhat of that which can be malleable. Because as I've stated, you know, human nature is to manipulate nature in itself. We see this with us going to space. We see it with our manipulation of the environment around us. But unless you'll have anything else to say, I'm going to jump into the postmodernism of Trump again. I did want to get into your point earlier about labor. You were saying that people just have like a misconception of labor or just a misunderstanding of labor. And I think that's a really good point. But I also think that that's kind of intentional. Like, I think the reason that we have that is because you have so many people who just understand economics in not even an economics 101 sense. It's less than that because they're just going on what they retained from the one course they had in high school or college, if you're lucky. And even that 
doesn't exactly pertain to the real world. I often hear of economists being described as the priests of the religion of capitalism. And you can see it all the time. Like if you try to argue with uh, even like our libertarian friend last week, as soon as we start talking about how it actually operates in practice, the book comes out. Capitalism 101 comes out and he says things like people need to be prompted to start businesses because it's going to benefit them and then they benefit their employees and they benefit their customers. When in reality, (laughs) the way that it's operating now is you have businesses like Amazon, which are only operating at a loss so that they can control an entire industry and then they start to make a profit. Like you have monopoly capital going on, you have imperialism going on and capitalism, as far as it's concerned in the books, it's not how it really goes. And that book always comes out when you start to argue with people who are on the right. They just start talking about Econ 101 as if it actually pertains. But if that were the case, we would be living in a paradise right now. Yes. You look at what people were saying in like the 40s and 50s, and they were saying, oh, by the time 2000 comes around, we'll all be working four hours a week and we'll be making even more money and we'll all have all this leisure time and everybody will have all these amenities that we have. But Everyone will have it. There'll be no poverty, though. And medical science will have cured every disease known to man and will be living forever. And none of that shit happened because all the profits of productivity started just funneling upwards. And you just have people using the profit that they're making to corrupt our political system. And it's like you really can have either an economic system that funnels money upwards and also ties money to power, or you can have a democracy. But you cannot have both. And that's why we as leftists love to laugh at liberals when they say that Trump is killing our democracy because... The idea that you even think <laughs> yeah. we have it, like, go fuck yourself. You're dumb yeah. as shit if you actually believe that we have had a democracy at any time in the recent few decades. Like, it just doesn't work that way. But like I say, that capitalism is a religion. That's really what it comes down to, because you have to shove off all of the failures of the system onto the individual. And liberals do it, too. Like, if you tell liberals that you are struggling, they think it's because you didn't get the right degree. You didn't go to school. You didn't do whatever. It's a personal failure on your part. And that's why they are completely inept in the face of combating postmodern conservatism, because they both agree on the point that it's always the individual's fault. It's always your fault. It's always this particular group's fault. It's never the fault of capitalism. That is always assumed by both economists and the people who believe in their religion that they are putting out there, that it is the default state of humanity and we can never question it. That's why I hate Fukuyama. Fuck that guy. People on the right and like uh, capitalists like saying like, oh, it's econ 101, even though they have no fucking idea how an economy actually works. They're all operating off the nirvana fallacy. You know, they have these ideological take on the good propaganda version of capitalism. They believe that and they just spout that off without actually realizing what the system is about. And then um, a second point I wanted to bring up, circling back to the chimps, gives me a little bit of faith in uh, human nature was that multiple times it's been observed where the alpha male chimps, the leader, will be hoarding resources and the tribe will get together and kill him and Mm -hmm. dip out the resources to everybody else. (laughs) That's also a thing. Yep. (laughs) I will say one last thing is that it really puts us at a disadvantage because as leftists, even the best of us will maybe have a rudimentary understanding of the labor theory of value or whatever Marx or Engels wrote about labor as a concept and how it should be thought of in an economic sense. But everyone and their mother has the basic talking points that they got from high school or that they got from somewhere online about why socialism doesn't work because everybody gets paid the same and nobody's motivated to work and everybody starves to death. That's what you're up against is everyone having those same talking points. Doesn't matter how false they are. 
are, you then have to be an economist, historian, and also a political scientist to even come back at these people. Because even though the knowledge is out there, like Marxist.org exists, it's free. You can just go on there and read all this shit. But a lot of people don't. And it's really difficult. Even if you do, it's very dense and boring. So we really just have this uphill battle in front of us. I had a wonderful Twitter argument with this guy who claims he's part of the, quote, capitalist party. <laughs> um, <laughs> and one of, one of his Gross. talking points is you're, you're conflating capital with currency, that they're two different things. And, you know, I understand in some rudimentary sense, yeah, capital is what you have to invest and you expect a return on that capital. And that's fucking cute and all. But let's be fucking real. Currency is capital. And this is my reasoning is because if you pay your worker, you are expecting your worker to go and buy groceries, buy gas, buy all the shit that keeps them alive to be a functioning human being. And why do you do that? So that you can expect a return from their labor. So every bit of currency investment is capital, whether it's a wage, it really doesn't matter. But you, you see, my point is there's this weird dissociative differential in the conservative mindset between capital, i.e. risk, and currency, i.e. what people just spend, you know, the meager, helpless masses. And I think that that's completely false. It's part of the mythology. All of it is capital. All of it is the availability of you being able to provide and be a cog in this system. So when somebody asks me about like, how do I perceive the value of labor? What I'm really seeing is more so how is capital perceiving that value, not necessarily other human beings. If I'm getting paid for a job, you're investing in me to come back to that job healthy enough to keep fucking moving. Yeah. Yeah. The slave sells himself once and the worker sells himself every day, every hour. Yep. Yeah. When it comes to the conservatives and saying that just like how they're saying that capital and currency are two different things, it just comes down to the core belief that when it comes to conservative and neoconservatism, it's not an ideology that actually explains a process. It's a retcon. It works backwards from a conclusion. Mm -hmm. And that conclusion is rich people should be rich. And everything else that goes with conservatism is a way to explain that. You're saying with capital yeah. and currency... A lot of conservatives, when societal issues come up, like the baker who wouldn't bake a cake for the uh, gay couple. No, that old chestnut. <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> conservatives are like, why would you boycott? Just take your money elsewhere. Vote with your dollar. Well, the problem with when you vote with your dollar is that people with billions of dollars have way more fucking votes than yeah. the average person does. We can yeah, pull our resources and we'll never be able to vote with our dollar in the way that these billionaires would be able to. Yep. Yep. That was also a really big talking point relating to our future episode with Thatcher. She was famous and infamous for trying to institute this poll tax, which was a flat tax on everybody. And, you know, the reality is that the cost of bread, the cost of basic necessities doesn't necessarily change in lieu of a flat tax like that. So, you know, we could issue a flat tax on me and also on Jeff Bezos. And if that flat tax is very high, I won't survive. And he will be just fine. He might be a little irked, but he's going to be fine. Yeah. yeah, flat tax is inherently regressive as opposed to progressive. Absolutely. Also, in the chimps, aren't a lot of chimps and other related species commonly homosexual? That's pretty sick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sick, in, sick in a good way. Sick in a good way for anyone listening. Yeah, it, it's, it's observed, especially in bonobos. Bonobos just fuck. Yeah, yeah. Just love like, it. Although I don't know if they're, I don't know yeah. if they're real big on consent. They may not be. 
Ooh. Oh, it's like if you get in a fight with your friend, you just, you know, jerk them off and then you're not in a fight anymore. We've all been there. <laughs> we, true. We've all been there. I mean, how else would you stop fighting real quick? <laughs> all right, Cosmo, you want to bring it home? Yeah, I got you. Um, <laughs> Good luck following that. I know, right? I uh, think to give some examples of this postmodern conservatism that I'm referencing with someone like Trump. It comes from this speech he was giving on July 24th of 2018. The main rhetoric becomes when he's talking about, just remember what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. You have these people <laughs> adopt this ideology that it promotes these shirts that have proud support of the Muslim ban. You have this ideology of build the wall, protecting us from the other, protecting us from the thing that is going to come in and deconstruct that which is the cultural America, yeah. <laughs> basically. You have MAGA in itself, which is a whole huge thing. But you also have this influence of the new media and the technological influences that have had things like Breitbart, Tucker Carlson, Shapiro, Crowder, Peterson, and there's too many to name of how influential the right has become within this technological space. And that's what we're talking about, what Mike was talking about within the saturation of this right-wing ideology that is pound it down your throat, take the world around you, put on these glasses and see a new image. I think the thing about Trump is it's going to be especially dangerous to someone like me in the way that I give analysis to this, is that both Reagan and Obama served two terms. They did their max. It is looking more and more so every day Trump is not going to serve a second term. A second term now? Sure. 2024. Right. And that's even more so of what's dangerous about this. If we look at what we're seeing with the failure of Trump's ability to be reelected, usually we look at an event like this, interpret it as a destruction of a dream or idea. And I, I say, fuck no, fuck you. This is a preservation of the dream in itself, the person, and furthermore, turns this ideology into another myth in itself. If you look at those who were and are still Trump supporters, you can see this common thread of him being the president fighting to save our children fighting against the tyranny of the demons in D.C. to drain the swamp from these politicians. And I will add that this is in itself the wrong assessment into the root of the problem, which corrupts these politicians, which is in large part corporations, the think tanks, the lobbyist groups, and so on, that pour millions into both of these parties to ensure that no matter who loses, that they win. That would, I think, is a very basic thing to look at, but is important to bring up here. But now, since he's been outed in this fraudulent election, someone might say, he won't be able to actualize these promises. Thus, the myth of what could have been will live on, and this will be preserved in the Trump mythos. When in reality, if Trump had gone on to win a second term, he would have more than likely have continued down the same path we've seen these last four years, acting on this corporation bias, acting on this sleight of hand, which is the core of Reaganomics, which is trickle-down economic. We're going to cut taxes on people, that way you get the breadcrumbs that fall off of their table and so on, stuff like that. But because of this, we see the paradox of these things being actualized in an ideological sense, and the fight for them will be preserved with the dream. I think an interesting thing to add to that is just this manipulation in terms of rhetoric uh, that we do see from not just Donald Trump, but from American leadership in general. As you guys pointed out, last episode, Reagan's slogan was Make America Great Again. But we also have it followed by things like build that bridge. We have it filled by things like support our troops. And we just have all these amalgamous, you know, yes, we can. All of this shit that means absolutely nothing. But in that sense, it's so malleable that you can garner more support with it. Yep. I think for a lot of people, when they heard make America great again, 
it doesn't really matter what your perception of a great America is. It could be the 1950s booming economy. It could be the inherent racism of the 1950s. <laughs> it could be whatever you want it to be because it's that moldable. Even with support our troops, I'm adamantly against U.S. imperialism. But do I support troops? Yes, I do, because more than half of them don't know what the fuck they're doing overseas. And I feel legitimately bad for them. So, yeah. yeah. I do support them. I just don't support their handlers. You know, all of these slogans are meant to intentionally worm their way into your psyche and manipulate how you think until you are a proponent of the system. What do you you mean when you say you support them, though? Just out of curiosity. I support their what they mean to do. I think there are good people who serve, and I think that they are manipulated in ways that they do not understand. Mm. And I think that that's very sad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think even I would say I support their physical well-being. Like, I would like the soldiers who come back to be taken care of by the VA. I would like that to be a functioning system to get them the mental health and the physical health care that they need. Absolutely. Um, But I I do not support support their agendas. Yeah. I I don't support like the violent assholes who just sign up to kill people. But, you know, most of them just sign up because they want to be able to go to school and not have to pay for it or go. Exactly. Exactly. Like I said, I have I have military in my family. And one of the things is knowing a lot of people who are active duty just because you're in the military does not mean you're inherently a bad person. What I disagree with is the way that the military is used by the powers that be. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. If if that gives any clarification to my standpoint, but. All that was to say was to reinforce, honestly, Cosper's point as to the, the meaning of rhetoric behind these, quite frankly, empty slogans. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I feel like it's tempting to think that if Trump had won a second term, that his inability to do any of the things that he promised in the first term, lock her up, build the wall, all that shit. It's tempting to think that that would have sealed the deal in disillusioning all of his fans in the cult of Trump, that it would have gotten them out of it. But there's really no way. I mean, it, is, it definitely is the case because he didn't get a second term. He will always be mythologized and they will always look back on this and say that he would have done this and he would have really got it done if he had gotten that second term. And I can already see the makings of what people are going to be still saying in 20 years. Like the conspiracy nuts are going to be saying like, oh, well, when Biden stole that election, that's when America really started to go downhill. They're going to be saying that shit in bars for the rest of our lives. Like, just get used to that. But the difference, I think, is like, I think Obama getting his second term and still not helping the working class did radicalize a lot of people. Like, I know a lot of people on the left who are there now because of that. But we're not the same as the right. Like, we are actually bound by reality. And that's what separates us from them. Like, they are just part of a cult. And that's because on the right, especially the postmodern conservatives, you don't have to have a consistent or coherent ideology. And that's why they do such completely uh, contradictory things. Like I was saying earlier, they love Christianity, but they hate immigrants from South America who are very Christian. They love Jesus, but for some reason, conservative Christians don't like them. And we all know why that is. You would think that they could get along, but they don't. And it's because it's not about being consistent. It's not about loving your neighbor. It's not about all the things that they say they actually do. It's just about aesthetics. It's about feeling like you're losing that place of privilege that you've had for so long and wanting to go with whoever is saying that they will put you back in that position. Even if a second term Trump had happened, his fans were not going to be disillusioned. They don't have the capability to come out of the cult. They're still going to believe in it even harder no matter what. I think the point that I was going to try to make was just this becomes more of a dangerous and more of a susceptible thing that someone could buy into because of the inability of it to be falsified. Now, I guess is what I'm getting at. 
you know, I get the yeah. idea that what you're saying, but I wanted to touch on this postmodern conservatism innately drawing from this idea of nostalgia. You know, we see it drawing from these things of identities of an individualism of, you know, maybe some people want to return to the Wild West, Jeremy was saying with the 1950s, for whatever thing they want to return to, there is this route which they're trying to get back to, which is innately ungraspable because of the technological or societal development we've had. Probably the most accessible, like, interpretation of how the right weaponizes nostalgia is the South Park episode with the member berries. <laughs> like, oh, remember Bespin? Remember this? Mm-hmm. Like, I remember. And it's just weaponized this adulterated memory of what history was for a person in a time, not the actual circumstances and history that was occurring in that time. I think that's entirely accurate. You know, one thing that a lot of people don't know, let's just look at Trumpism insofar as Mexicans, for instance. There was an event in the late 1920s, early 1930s called the Mexican Repatriation. And during this time, uh, Mexicans and Latino people in general were being blamed for the economic downturn that was largely the product of badly planned interest rates, loans, The same things that we saw that got us into 2008, including banking deregulation and things like that. But instead of looking into these issues, Herbert Hoover and the predominant American politicians at the time were blaming Mexicans primarily. And this resulted in the Mexican repatriation, which ended up sending, if my memory serves, a couple million American-born Latino people to Mexico, a country they've never fucking been to in their life. So this happened in the late 20s, and it happened again in the 1950s. And I'm not joking about this part. When they did it in the 50s, they called it Operation Wayback. I'm not joking about the name. Literally, Wikipedia that shit right now, because that's what they actually called it. Um, Oh my fucking God. And now it's happening again, is there's economic strife, and they're eager to blame Mexicans, specifically Mexican immigrants. This is the third time it's happened. And Americans just will not catch on to it. Yeah. And going off of what Cosper was saying, like how the make America great again thing, it's a moving fucking target because like you ask people like, when was America great? They didn't fucking know. They don't have a date. (laughs) But like if you follow like and look into conservative (laughs) politics, it's roughly 30 years ago is what they always do. Now, the Make America Great Again thing is hearkening back to Reagan. And yep. during Reagan, it was going back to the they 50s. To back and the back 50s. in the 50s, yeah. it was sometime before the New Deal. <laughs> and, that, and that's why I always call conservatism diet fascism, because fascism relies on the rhetoric of nostalgia, but in a much older form. Oh, we were inherently gifted by God and we we're mm-hmm. destined to rule the world. Like it harkens back much further than actual conservative harkens back to, but That's it's true, still yeah. a version of it. Uh, Hitler loved his Bible quotes. And how Americans, quote unquote, dealt with indigenous people. Yep. Yes. Real quick, did you guys see like that? Uh, apparently some protesters went out and took a, a flag with like Hitler shooting himself in the head. And it says, follow your, le- <laughs> follow your leader. And this right wing news article is like, uh, Antifa is telling Trump supporters to kill themselves. And they're like, yo, homie, no one said Trump. <laughs> that's that's you, connect- <laughs> that's you connecting that dot. <laughs> yeah, you guys yeah, are telling yourself. Way to expose yourself. <laughs> No chill. Sorry about that, Cosmo. No, you're all good. I, I love that point. I've always loved that banner. But um, I think what we have to ask ourselves is like, we can recognize these things as they are for postmodern conservatism. We can see why Trump is rising. We can see how this is going to play out. But what is to be done to combat it? 
That is, I think, the most important question here is not just identifying the problem, but also positing a solution potentially to it. I think the solution is different dependent on, as we were talking about earlier with these chimpanzees and what have you, is that it's dependent upon the cultural environment that you exist in individually. Not individually in the sense of like, oh, this is my truth or whatever type of bullshit. But I mean, like, you have definitely different cultures from America to where you have this commodification of not only like Coca-Cola, but also the individual to where itself, to where the entertainment supercenter of the world, right? But then you look at some highly exploited country like Mexico or what have you, and you say, what is it there? I think that it draws upon the necessity and also the responsibility to whoever wants to be the agent of change in this scenario to recognize the culture that it exists in, what people's desires are within that culture, and formulate out the synthesis to bring about what this change is. Because while we can say that these ideologies of postmodern conservatism are bullshit, they're whack, they're rooted in fallacy, what have you, there's something that's there that is making people latch on to it. And we have to recognize that. If we don't, we fail to grasp the audience at which we intend to reach. To write it off as bullshit, we're writing off the people who believe in it as well. And while some can say that's fine, I don't care, I do care. Because these people are innately a part of the movement at which you must create in order to make a change in the world tangibly. You cannot rule anybody out of this scenario who's willing to listen to you and willing to change. And for some people, it is very true that they are too far gone in the sense of like not willing to change or what have you, but it is important to recognize that there are people out there who want to change. And there are people out there who are willing to listen to you and do these things. But you must identify what has got them into the belief system that they are currently in and deconstruct the reality of which they've created for themselves. I wouldn't even say it's really deconstructing more than deprogramming, you know, with the propaganda that's fed with the education system. I think one good answer to how we can react and how we can solve these issues is education. We need a better education system that teaches people like actual truths and not just fucking bullshit that's passed down from Western ideologies. May I suggest that everyone listening does this by sharing our podcast? The second option is like a well-armed proletariat and a bunch of guillotines, you know. May I suggest we also do that? <laughs> I think there's um, kind of an elephant in the room, which is for most right wing movements, there's a very close relationship to religious fundamentalism. And I think that that's not coincidental, because one thing that I've discovered in exploring leftist politics and, of course, anarchism in particular, but it's also present in the works of Marx, would be that there, there is no prescribed solution that works across the board. And I think that leftists are very generally respectful of the idea that regional and indigenous politics are a thing. And that honestly, at least insofar as I'm concerned, there is not a single solution that is going to work the entire world over. The human condition is far too varied for something like that to exist. Now, if we look at it through the lens of right-wingers, it's very convenient to think that something like capitalism will work the entire world over. Because why wouldn't you believe that if you believe in an all-knowing, all-seeing God? The ideas of this blanket truth are already accepted on a very grand scale for those who are quite religious. So why not let that same sort of amalgamous truth extend into your political perceptions? 
And I think that that's a really important talking point for why conservative mentalities tend to exist in these religiously fundamental groups. Yeah. How can you argue with somebody who has really bigoted and extremist evangelical views when in their mind, they fully believe that they were made in the image of God and that's what God would want? Yeah, it's virtually impossible. And that's the entirety of it is if you can believe that this blanket belief of yours is true, then why not accept that capitalism can exist the world over and be completely infallible? I would like to also point out that within a lot of right ideology, there is an adoption of left-wing ideology as well. I think that we have to acknowledge this. When we look at like a National Socialist Party, we have this adoption of the Social Democrats of the time and stuff like that. There's a lot of things that they take from everyone, and we must acknowledge the fact that, like you said, to reach a synthesis requires an amalgamation of many different things, not just one. I don't think it's that the right takes things from the left. It's that they cloak their fascist rhetoric yes. with progressive language. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's my intent there. It's not that they actualize okay. the idea, but they facade it as this attempt to. Because, you know, when we talk about this National Socialist attempt at unity, it's, okay, unity with a certain group of people, but obviously someone's excluded from it. There has to be, right? I should clarify with that. I apologize. No, yeah, but you're no, totally like, right. That's the thesis of the dog whistle. You know, that's what, you know, when Reagan was president, that's what Christians heard. And when Trump is president, that's what Christians heard is just a protectionism of their, you know, let's be honest, superiority in this country to everyone else, their protected status. And not only their yeah. superiority, but the cultural existence that they play into at the current moment. You know, this idea that the other will come in and destroy all of the culture that we have in the form of uh, illegal immigrants from Mexico or in Germany's case, these uh, Jews who cloak themselves as the identity of a German, but are in reality, those who go back home to these roach-infested swine places, right? Yeah, communists. Yeah. Precisely, yeah. yes. Dirty commies. <laughs> there, always has to be, there always has to be an enemy, and that enemy always has to be simultaneously weak and strong, and you always have to feel like, you know, you're co-opting the socialist rhetoric, and they say that they want to be anti-capitalist and redistribute the wealth from all these elites, and those elites are always conveniently all Jews, even though they're a small subset of the people who are wealthy. When in reality, 100% of the people who are controlling all those systems of power are wealthy. It doesn't get much simpler than that. Like, that is the difference between the left and the right. The left sees wealthy people as the problem, and the right sees a small subset of those wealthy people as the problem. Seems pretty obvious to me. And then even if you try to ask them what their prescription is, so that the solution is to redistribute their wealth, but they still want to do capitalism. They just want to do it only with white people at the helm. And more specifically... <laughs> you know, straight white men who look conveniently like them who are going through their midlife crises and feel like they are, you know, victimized somehow. And even more preferably are actually literally them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wanted to touch on the, uh, on what you said, Sharon, like how the dog whistles and the adoption of progressive language. I don't think it, especially with the Trump era, the dog whistles have gone away. Even on the campaign trail, Trump killed a lot of political euphemisms. Because it used to be for the longest time that border security was about protecting American jobs, even though nobody was profiling white European Americans and checking their visas and pulling them over. Mm -hmm. It was just brown people. 
Isn't the theory of protecting American jobs fucking crazy when Americans are building manufacturing plants in other countries? It's like, you guys really, you can't connect dots that fucking (laughs) two-dimensional. Well, we're talking about people on the right. They don't have two brain cells to rub together half the time. I think that there's, don't get me wrong, I think that a lot of the former dog whistles kind of evaporated with the Trump presidency, but there were some new ones that you have to have the right set of eyes to see it. And that is, that is not the normal right wingers, but it is this other subsect of right wingers. So, you know, when we see the, the upside down red triangle that was on his website for a while, when we see things priced oh, at yeah. $88.88, If it were just one of those things as a Jew, I'd be like, oh, well, you know, maybe he fucked up. But when it's those things over and over repeatedly compounded with his just like overt themes of the globalists are against America, I'm already thinking in my head, like you're referencing the protocols of the elders of Zion. And then he starts talking about QAnon. And then I'm just like, you know what, dude, you are a fucking Nazi. And, you know, the average conservative may not see that the same way. I think you're right, Ward. The average conservative isn't going to see this and put the, you know, pieces together. But the average Nazi definitely will. Yeah. And I think that's what the stop the steal is, too. I mean, that's literally no one believes all this bullshit they're saying or that there's enough to overturn it. They believe that only their voice should be counted. Yes. 100%. Yeah, they're believing that Biden rigged an election without a fucking paper trail or like evidence trail. My man can't rig a sentence. Like, I wish fucking Biden was as cool as they fucking made it sound. Like, come on, man. <laughs> Like the version that the right talks about Biden sounds so fucking cool. I want that Biden. Yeah. On a good day, he could tell his wife and his fucking sister apart. And you think he rigged this (laughs) multi-fucking-dimensional thing. I've seen memes about, you know, now I guess we know why Biden wasn't actually out there campaigning. He knew he had it the whole time. I'm like, homie, he probably still don't realize he won. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so I do want to, uh, we spent probably the last half hour or so kind of digressing, but to tie it back to Reagan, the topic yeah. at hand, I do want to make it clear that he is responsible for this shift in conservatism to the postmodern and for what led us now to this post-subtext era where now all the, all the nuance is gone, all the, uh, the dog whistles are now just foghorns. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for the Reagan era. And he was directly responsible for that. And I think it could also be a coincidence of just the shift in how media operates. Because before then, you had long-form television programs. You had people like Buckley debating Gore Vidal. And they would actually make talking points. And they would have long-form discussions and try to actually talk about concepts of conservatism versus liberalism. That was what our political discourse was at the time. And it started to shift with Reagan into this cult-like version of conservatism that we now have today. Yeah, didn't he like when it came to the debates, it wasn't so much more on policy where he was, I think one, he was like, oh, I don't want to bring up my opponent's age. He went straight for their personal attacks, not even like actual policy statements. Is that not bringing up his age to say that though? It just reminds yeah. me of the Kim Jong-un thing where he's like, Kim Jong-un had such terrible things to say about me. I would never speak about how fat he is. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I think very earlier on in the episode, you touched on a great point about someone like Reagan, in my opinion, that has led to this Trumpism in a very good way, is that we have the rise of the storyteller with someone like Reagan. We have this reconceptualization. And it's not to say that, oh, we had 
you know, strictly policy-based people. I know Reagan came along and ruined this, but I think he made the prevalence of it more realizable, especially in modernity of what we realize of, you know, maybe the, this Reagan existed before him and people looked up to him, but now especially we have those who are alive who say, this is Reagan. I agree with you. I don't think Reagan actually was the one who like started conservatives down the road. I think he's just was the fuel to the fire. I think the start was with Barry Goldwater and the Southern strategy. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, that, I think that's where it started. And I think we, we, we forget Nixon a lot, too. I mean, we mm-hmm. always remember Nixon for Watergate. But, I mean, Nixon, in a lot of ways, if his legacy wasn't, quote-unquote, tarnished by Watergate, I mean, he was very Reagan-esque yeah, himself. Yeah, he was the werewolf of Washington. Yeah. The thing, exactly to touch on that, what I was going to say was that I think that the, the root of this would be something of the nature of this, like you said, Goldwater's Southern strategy coupled with Nixon's ability to turn this war on drugs into actual just mask on version of how we're going to criminalize a subsect of the community. And if you remember his campaign manager saying, yes, we're, we're talking about drugs, but really we're just talking about how to lock these people up and get them off the streets and stuff of this nature. <laughs> and then the doubling down, like I said earlier, my point on the war on drugs of someone like Reagan and not only is this doubling down on it, but the individualization of the responsibility on behalf of side character here in this episode is Nancy Reagan's entire rhetoric on just say no. And how ultimately, if you just say no, subject yourself to drugs, it's your fault. Nobody else's. You're in ultimate control of doing it or not, which to an extent, I agree you have that margin of freedom. But like Jerome was saying earlier, material conditions can force us to act on different beliefs at the time. I'm an idealist. Like I said, I'm a Hegelian before anything. But I believe that idealism is coupled with materialism to reach the correct synthesis, which is required to interpret. Wasn't Nancy Reagan also super into like reading a crystal ball or astrology or (laughs) whack ass shit? (laughs) Yeah, no, she had like a spiritual advisor who would read her astrology report like every day. It was was What? Yeah, was it Stevie Nicks or was it Marianne Williamson? And she's secretly like 120 oh, years shit. old. Y'all fucking me up right now. <laughs> Alright, well I think that's as good a place as any to wrap it up. Yeah, I'll just run through the plugs. As usual, for Cosper, we'll plug the DSA. That's uh, DSAUSA.org. For uh, Jaron, we'll plug his website. That's Jaron Perlman. J-A-R-O-N P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N dot com. Go ahead and pick up his book, The Politics of Fear. I picked up a copy myself today. And as he told me, all the proceeds are going to Black Lives Matter. So good on you for that, dude. Oh, yeah. Check out Sterling at, on our Twitter. It's Turn Leftist Pod. And I will always be at uh, Turn Leftist on Instagram or Turn Leftist 1312. And uh, Ward Lawley is on Instagram as well at W A R D L A W L E Y. And just like I am at Turn Leftist 1312 whenever I'm shadow banned, he is now a victim of the shadow ban. So now he is <laughs> the millennial leftist. Yeah, it's uh, at millennial leftist on Instagram. That's my backup now. Yeah, so check him out. He's posting there and he's got some funny shit on there as always. And uh, someone else in the group chat asked me to uh, shout out the Party of Communists US. So that's just partyofcommunistsusa.org. He wanted me to shout that. I think that was Tris Dow in the group chat wanted me to mention that. All right, cool. Well, I guess we will leave it there. All we have is each other. Join the SRA. Join the PSL. Find your local organization. Join it. Organize and help each other however you can because that's all we have. We don't have any kind of real systems in place to help us. So unless anybody has anything else, I think we will leave it there. Thank you, gentlemen.
Can't wait to do oh, it yeah. again. I'll see you guys next week. Can't wait. Uh, Y'all take care. See ya.